Lord, we do thank you for your love. We pray in Jesus' name that it would wash over us and transform us. Uh, Let it revolutionize us and let it create a wildfire of hope. Thank you for your love. Thank you for the cross. To you be the glory in Jesus' name. Thank you for your presence. Thank you for abiding with us. Thank you for never leaving us nor forsaking us. Thank you for your power that makes whatever we're going through look microscopic. Praise you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, I know that your prayers and my prayers have been going out to France and there have been victims of terrorist attacks in Kenya, in Lebanon. Where did all of this begin? Well, we can go back to the book of Genesis and see the origin of all of the terrorism, all of the evil, all of the fear that is filling our headlines today. God gave Abraham a promise. He said, I'm going to give you a son. Well, there was a problem with that promise according to Abraham's perspective. And that problem was that Abraham was 75 years of age. His wife's womb was barren. Sarah, they'd never been able to have children up to this point. And again, he's 75 years of age. Sarah's about 65. So they waited and they tried and still no son. So finally Sarah has a bright idea. She tells Abraham, look, this is impossible. Why don't you have a child with my servant woman, Hagar? And Abraham did. It was a faithless decision. It was a godless decision. And the result of that was that Hagar had a son and this son's name was Ishmael. And God told, Abraham told God, God, that the promise that you gave me, that it might come through Ishmael. And God said, no, I gave you a promise, and this promise is going to come through your wife, Sarah. Well, now Abraham is about 99, and his wife, 89, and guess what? About a year later, they have a child, and it's the promised child, and they name this child Isaac. Well, wouldn't you know it, uh, competition, as is the case with so many brothers, arises between Ishmael and Isaac, and between uh, Sarah and between Hagar, and at the word of Sarah and her uh, jealousy and her displeasure, they drive out Hagar and Ishmael, and from that point on, there has been animosity between Isaac's descendants, which is the Hebrew race, the Jewish race, and Ishmael's descendants, which is the entire Arab community. And that tension and that rivalry and that competitive spirit and that even hatefulness has continued to this day. And may we look at that today in 2015, almost 2016, and may we see the ripple effect, the butterfly effect, the building, cumulative effect of our godless decisions, of our faithless decisions. We cannot make decisions that are not fully consecrated, fully surrendered, fully trusting of God, and that not affect people close to us. And we cannot make faithless decisions, and those decisions not have a cumulative effect that affects generations after us. But at the same time, we can make godly decisions, fully consecrated decisions, fully surrendered decisions, and those decisions too greatly impact the people close to us, even if we don't initially see it. And those godly and fully surrendered decisions also have a cumulative effect that affects generations after us. For example, let me tell you about a Sunday school teacher named Edward Kimball. 
He was a Sunday school teacher in the mid-1800s, and this Sunday school teacher was very discouraged. Because he didn't think he was making much of a difference. His, his, the, the children in his classroom weren't paying attention to him, and he didn't feel that they were growing spiritually. But he continued to pray for them, but he also continued to have the tension of a burden for the kids and praying for them, but also being discouraged. Well, one day in Sunday school, there was a kid, the most troubled kid, the, you know, that kid that, that creates the, that contaminates the learning environment for all the other kids. That kid wasn't at Sunday school. Well, he got a job as a shoe salesman. So this Sunday school teacher, Edward Kimball, said, I'm going to go to this shoe store and I'm just going to do it, man. I'm just going to be bold and I'm going to lead this kid to Christ or try. And so he went in and he put his hand on the shoulder of this kid named D.L. Moody. And he said, Dwight, receive Jesus. And he left and didn't think that he uh, made much of an impact. But you want to know something? D.L. Moody testified he did receive Christ when that Sunday school teacher put his hand on his shoulder. And his life had never been the same. And D.L. Moody went on to become the most influential and powerful evangelist up to that date. Uh, before the time of, 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 of amplification and transportation and modern transportation technology, he led more people to Christ than anybody in history up to that date. Well, D.L. Moody was conducting a series of evangelistic uh, revivals and crusades in England, and there was somebody in his, uh, in his crowd, it was a pastor, and this pastor couldn't stand to hear D.L. Moody preach because this particular pastor named F.B. Meyer was very scholar and very learned, and D.L. Moody absolutely butchered the English language. And so once he finally got through D.L. Moody's grammar, he heard D.L. Moody say, surrender your whole life to Christ. The world has yet to see what God will do through the man who is fully surrendered to him. And even if you don't want to be surrendered, at least pray that God would make you want to want to be surrendered. And that transformed F.B. Meyer's life and his entire ministry changed. And then he began emulating Dale Moody's ministry. And then he was in the United States ministering. And there was somebody out in the congregation named William Chapman. And William Chapman was transformed by F.B. Meyer's message. And then William Chapman went on to conduct a series of evangelistic crusades, and he had recruited onto his team a retired baseball player named Billy Sunday. And Billy Sunday also began holding evangelistic crusades, and there was a group of people in North Carolina who were converted as a result of the former baseball player Billy Sunday's message, and then they decided to... Uh, to developed their own evangelistic crusade in North Carolina, and they brought in a guy, an evangelist named Mordecai Ham, to share the gospel of Jesus Christ. And by now we're in 1934, and Mordecai Ham shared the gospel of Jesus Christ, and there was a young teenage boy, about 15 years of age, in the congregation that came forward to receive Christ that night, and his name was Billy Graham. And Billy Graham has led more people to Christ than anybody else in all of history over the last 60 years. And we can trace that butterfly effect all the way back to a discouraged Sunday school teacher. And now as, as I was praying about this and I was looking at the result, the cumulative effect, the, the butterfly effect of unrighteousness and a lack of faith and how that can cause dissension close to us and destruction. And I was also praying about and considering the, the cumulative effect and the butterfly effect of when somebody does fully surrender their lives to Christ, who will dare to believe that the world has still yet to see what God will do 
through the man, woman, boy, and girl who was fully consecrated to him. I thought, what will be the butterfly effect of one decision made today? And I know that you're thinking, but I'm just one person or we're just one church. How can we possibly make a difference when we see what's going on around the world? We'll consider a mosquito. A mosquito is very small, but it can sure make a difference in your life, can't it? Because it's busy. And when we fully consecrate ourselves to him, and if we get busy, the world has yet to see what God will do through you and what God will do through me. You know, when we look at the, the consequence of Abraham's faithless decision, one of the things, if not the greatest thing, that I love the most about God, and that is that God redeems the faithless decisions that I've made. In his love and mercy, God redeems our consequences when we turn to him. So Abraham and Sarah cast out Hagar and Ishmael, and it was a really tragic scene, and here's Hagar, and she has her her son Ishmael, and she's afraid he's going to starve to death or die of thirst, and they're out in the wilderness, they have no home, they have nowhere to go, they have no people to go to, and she's crying out to the Lord, and God looks at Hagar and Ishmael, yes, the forefathers of the Islamic Nation and the Arab world, God looks at Hagar and Ishmael and he has compassion for them. And he says, I'm going to bless you and I'm going to take care of your son and whatever your son touches, I'm going to bless. I was in India with Brandon and Darnell and I was in Mumbai and I saw more people than I'd ever seen in my life. And I sort of slipped away from from our team and I was just exploring Mumbai on my own and I heard the sound of Muslim prayers. They were in a coliseum that had no roof on it and to me initially it was an ominous sound, a foreboding sound and all of these Muslim prayers continued to go up and I walked closer to the coliseum and I saw that they had all of their sandals at the, at the foot of the, the, the entrance and I walked in and they must have been uh, performing their benediction, their closing prayer. There was a sea of Muslims in the middle of the coliseum. They were all on their face praying to Allah which is no God at all. At best, Allah is thin air, and at worst, a demon or Satan himself who promotes destruction and violence and hate. And they were praying to Allah, and then their prayers dismissed. And and I was standing here, and when their prayers dismissed, they began walking toward me. And I was standing here, sticking out like a sore thumb, facing this way. And this sea of Muslims were all walking this way. And in my westernized, media-influenced mindset, my initial thought, I'm embarrassed to say, is this is the enemy. But then the Holy Spirit touched my heart and spoke to me and said, no, this is the mission field. I love them, and I died for them. And if just one of them turns to me and confesses Jesus Christ as the Lord and Savior, all of their sins will be forgiven, and they will be heaven-bound. And you think, but can God really save a Muslim? Can God really save an extreme Muslim? Of course He can. Look at Saul of Tarsus, a terrorist of terrorists who was persecuting the church, and he became the greatest apostle that the world has ever known. Look at John Newton, a slave trader who would literally go to Africa and board his ships with, with, with captives 
And if, they, if, if the rations were running low, they would, they would chain their legs together and throw them overboard. And so they would all drown. If, if, if they were sick, they would chain them all together and throw them overboard. And so they would all drown. And then once they did get back to the States, they would sell them like property. Nobody could ever begin to calculate how many widows John Newton participated in creating How many orphans he created, how many people he killed, how many lives he destroyed. And yet one day at sea, John Newton was in a storm, a perilous storm, and he prayed and God miraculously saved them. And at that moment, he gave his life to Jesus Christ and later penned the words of the timeless hymn, Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. I was blind, but now I see. Toward the end of John Newton's life, he forgot much of his memory, but he said, these two things I remember. I was a great sinner, but Jesus was a great Savior. If God can save the likes of Saul of Tarsus, if God can save the likes of John Newton, and if we take a sincere look in the mirror... And realize if God can save the likes of us, God can save the likes of anybody. There are no lost causes because the truth of the matter is we are all lost causes, but by the Holy Spirit. But because of the Holy Spirit, there are no lost causes. So when we see the news and we hear about terrorist attacks and we hear about immigration, vote your will, vote your biblical conscience, but let it break your heart. And above all, pray for souls and pray that God may use you to be a light that shines because that is what we're here for. And so for the rest of our service together, I'm going to talk about how we can let our light shine. And I pray again that you would be changed today because the world has yet to see what God will do through the person who is fully consecrated to him. May that person be you and may that church be us. If God can do it in the great awakening through this church and that church and the second great awakening through this church and that church, why not us? Why not how? now? Why not here? I know you want to be part of something more than a country club. I know you want to be part of something more than playing church. We can. But we have to fully consecrate our lives to Christ and pray, Here am I, Lord, send me. The world is dying for hope. Let's pray that they see hope through us. Let me pray. Father, I pray in Jesus' name that you would fully consecrate us and use us in Jesus' glorious name. Amen. So if you have your Bibles, open it to Exodus, Exodus chapter 33. And we're going to take a look at Moses, how Moses transformed the world. The world has never been the same, but he had to make some very significant decisions, and it's the same decisions that we're going to have to make today. Exodus chapter 33, let me catch you up to speed just a bit on Moses' place in life. He's traveling with the Israelites, millions of Jews across the uh, wilderness. They had just been delivered from Egypt, and the Israelites disrespected Moses' leadership. They complained, they whined. You know how some people have the spiritual gift of encouragement? They had this community, this group, and this generation had the spiritual gift of discouragement. But it wasn't from the Holy Spirit, it was from a different spirit. And they had the spiritual gift of divisiveness and 
contentiousness and frustration. And they were always trying to go back to the land that they were delivered from. And God was frustrated with the people. And Moses was frustrated with the people. Sometimes Moses would say, God, wipe them out. And God would say, no, I've got a plan. Sometimes God would say, I'm going to wipe them out. And Moses said, no, Lord, no. Remember your great love and your name. If God and Moses were ever mad at Israel on the same day, they would have been completely wiped out. (laughs) Finally, God became so frustrated. This is before the time after salvation where the Holy Spirit enters us and never leaves us nor forsakes us. And God became so irritated that he said, Moses, I'm going to be true to my word. And I'm going to be true to my name. And I'm going to be true to my promises. And I'm going to be faithful to you. And I'm going to lead you and the people into the promised land. But I'm not going to go with you. Because if I go another step, I'm surely going to wipe them out. I'm going to see to it that my power goes with you through a messenger, through an angel. But I'm not going to go with you. And let's just see Moses' response to all of this. Well, the first thing that we learned from Moses in transforming the world around us by being so filled with hope. One, we must passionately pursue God's ways. Exodus 33, 13. Listen to Moses' prayer. I think this is a very very potent prayer. It's a very descriptive prayer of Moses' heart. Listen to this. And I think that this, this prayer convicted me because it is so different from the way that I oftentimes pray. Moses said to the Lord, you see, you, you say to me, bring up this people, but you have not let me know whom you will send with me. Yet you have said, I know you by name, and you've also found favor in my sight. Now therefore, listen to this prayer. If I have found favor in your sight, please show me your ways that I may know you in order to find favor in your sight. Did you hear that? Did you hear what Moses prayed? He prayed, God, show me your ways so that I might find favor in your sight. What do we oftentimes pray? God, here's my wish list. Do it in a timely manner. And if you don't, what's wrong with you? Why don't you love me? Where are you? Moses didn't pray, God, here's what I want. Moses prayed, God, what do you want? Oftentimes, we do things, buy things, pursue things, invest in things without ever praying. And then once we get into it, we say, God, bless it. When in reality, we have no idea if it's the will of God at all. So often... We ask for things and demand that God gives it, forgetting that God is God and we are the servant, but we act like God and treat God like the servants. And then when God doesn't perform in a timely manner, we say, what is wrong with you? Moses didn't pray like that. Moses didn't pray, God, here's what I'm doing, bless it. Moses prayed, God, what are you doing so that I can join in with you? If you just show me what you're doing and I join in with you, I know that it will be blessed because I'm doing what you're doing. Moses didn't pray, God, here's my wish list, grant it. Moses prayed, God, what are your ways? Show me your ways. What is your wisdom? Because Jesus said, if you ask anything according to my will, it will be done unto you. If we pray the will of God, our prayers will be blessed and answered. But we must pray the will of God. Every day, we can passionately pursue God's ways, one, by reading the Word. And I encourage you to start with the book of Proverbs, the book of wisdom. Read the Bible, read the Word. It is an ocean of promises. 
If we read the word every day, it begins to absorb into our instincts. My good friend, Robert Borelli and his wife Patricia is here. And Robert has a wonderful testimony. You guys need to uh, Google his book. Look it up on, on Amazon. It's called The Witness, Robert Borelli. He was saved out of the organization that uh, the movie Goodfellas was based upon. That was his running crew, the Gambino crime family. Well, through a series of events, Robert was in prison and he came to Christ. And Robert took the Bible in prison. I love this story. I had Robert speak at LifeNet, and, and I, I, I asked him to please share this story. Robert took the word after he came to Christ, because people said, oh, you, this is just prison conversion. Once you get out of prison, you're not going to follow the Lord anymore. But Robert took the word in prison, and he put it in his chest, and he said, oh, God, let your word change my heart. And then he would put his face in, and he said, oh, Lord, let your word transform my mind. You say, well, I read the Bible, I don't get anything out of it. Do you read it with that heart? Do you read it with that attitude? Oh, God, let it absorb into my heart. Oh, God, let it absorb into my mind. If we read the Word of God every single day, it will absorb into your instincts, and it will transform you. Read the Word every day, and then pray for wisdom. In James, we read, if you lack wisdom, ask for wisdom. And don't we all lack wisdom? We all need to pray for wisdom. And if we pray for wisdom, the Bible says God will give it liberally. But let's believe that we have wisdom. Even Jesus, God in the flesh. Jesus, God in the flesh. Let me repeat this one more time. Jesus, God in the flesh. When he was walking on this earth, in his public ministry, in his personal life, He was constantly praying for the Father's will, for the Father's way, so much so that our Lord and Savior never winged it. He never made impromptu decisions. He never made decisions independent of God's will. I'm not talking about sinful decisions. I'm talking about all moral decisions. He never did anything. He says, whatever you hear me say, whatever I do, whatever I go, wherever I go, it's because I'm following my Father's will. May we have that same humility. You want to know why we are not prayerful? We are not prayerful because we are prideful. And pride proceeds the fall. How many times do we get ourselves in messes? Because we ran into something and we said, God, bless it. And God said, I never said, go there. And we give God our wish list and we say, God, do this. And God is saying, that is completely inconsistent with what I want for you. How do we know what God wants for us? How do we know what we should pray? We've got to be in the Word every day. We've got to pray for wisdom. And then we've got to seek godly counsel. And then all of that is all for naught if we don't choose wisely. Passionately pursue God's ways. Moses didn't say, oh God, do this and this and this. He was was a prayer warrior. But not because he demanded his wishes upon God. He was a prayer warrior because he demanded to know God's ways. And then since Moses had a heart for God and he had a heart for God's ways, then whatever Moses prayed, God did because Moses was praying God's heart. May we passionately pursue God's ways and repent of our prideful attitudes. Secondly, may we passionately pursue God's face. Let's look at verse 14. This is so incredible. Verse 14, and he said, God told Moses, okay, my presence will go with you and I will give you rest. And Moses continued to persist. It's like he's still shaken up. He's still alarmed by God's proposal not to go with them, just to send an angel. And Moses said in verse 15, 
And he said to him, if your presence will not go with me, do not bring us up for here. For how shall I, for how shall it be known that I have found favor in your sight, I and your people? Do you realize what's going on here? Moses was so audacious that he told God, I want no part of your blessings if you are not in it. How far has our heart strayed from that today? Haven't we reversed that? We demand God's blessings, and by and large in the church, especially in the states, we demand God's blessings but are indifferent to His presence. And most churches are so well-oiled and polished and mechanical that if the Holy Spirit steps out, if He hasn't already, the Christians would never know the difference. And what makes it all the more tragic is they are content for it to be so. Because in reality, they don't want to follow the Great Commission. They want to be comfortable. They don't want to be a wildfire. They want to huddle around a nice, cozy campfire. They don't want to be the church. They just, they just want to be a fraternity or a sorority. Moses had no part of any blessing that God was not part of. In fact, it sickened him. May we also reject, renounce, run from, and be sickened by any even supposed blessing that God is not in and that God is not blessing. And so we have to ask ourselves, does it reflect the heart of Christ? Oftentimes in churches today, you know it's true. Abrasive and arrogant and cynical leadership cultures are promoted and even rewarded when humility and servanthood is unpromoted and forgotten and even disrespected. Even though Christ's mandate is to develop the heart of the child and to lead with meekness and gentleness and humility. May we want no part of success. May we want no part of momentum. May we want no part of growth. If it doesn't reflect Christ's heart. Do you know? In America today, Sunday morning is the most segregated hour. Today, in our enlightened uh, 2015th century, the segregation in America is at its worst on Sunday morning. And again, Christians prefer it to be so. They have no desire of actually reflecting their diverse neighborhood, which is incidentally a reflection of heaven. What has happened to us? What's happened to us is that we began desiring the blessings of God and have remained indifferent to the presence of God. Moses said, God, if you're not going to go with us, I don't want some angel. If, if, if you're not going to go with us, I don't want your power devoid of your presence. If you're not going to go with us, I don't want to go into the land of milk and honey. It would be as empty and as wasteful as, as a honeymoon without your spouse. It would just be tragic. It would just be sad. And Moses said, I want no part of it. May we have that same heart. Moses passionately pursued God's ways. Moses passionately pursued God's presence. And Moses passionately pursued God's face. Let's look at Exodus chapter 33, verse 17. And the Lord said to Moses, this very thing that you have spoken, I will do. In other words, I'm going to go with you. For you have found favor in my sight, and I know you by name. And Moses said, watch this. Moses is still pressing into God. This still wasn't enough. Moses said, please, show me your glory. This is so presumptuous of Moses. This is so audacious of Moses. He had already seen so much of the Lord's glory. Now keep in mind, don't misinterpret this verse. 
Americans oftentimes read this, God, give me your glory. That's not what Moses said. Moses said, show me your glory. In other words, let me draw closer to you. Let me get closer to your ways. Let us experience your presence and your power more than we ever have before. Not, God, give me your glory. God, show me your glory. But Moses, haven't you already seen so much of God's glory? I mean, you, you, you saw God's presence at the burning bush. You heard God's personal name at the burning bush. You saw God's power with the ten plagues upon Egypt. You saw God's power and presence when he parted the Red Seas and your people walked across on dry ground and the Egyptian army was swallowed in the sea behind your people. You saw God's presence and his power when he led you in the wilderness by a, a cloud by day and pillar of fire by night. You, you, you experienced God's presence and provision through the heavenly manna and sustenance that he gave you every day. And now you're talking to God as a man talks to another man face to face. God's calling you as friend. God's saying, I know your name and you found favor in my sight. And God granted your request and said, okay, I'll go with you. And you're still pressing? I mean, haven't you seen enough? But you want to know what? This pressing is why God delighted so much in Moses. It still wasn't enough for Moses. Moses continued to pray, God, show me your glory. Let me see your face. In other words, God, I want to draw closer. If I can't draw closer, I surely must die. Let me get closer to you than I've ever been before. Let me see your face more clearly. Experience your, your, powerful, your power like I never have before. And if I can't get closer, God, then just take me out of here. Show me your glory. Let me get closer. May we have that same heart. Perhaps you've had a born-again experience. Perhaps you've had a transcendent spiritual experience in the, in, in, in the Holy Spirit. Perhaps you've seen somebody that you've prayed for for a long time come to Christ. Perhaps you've seen some momentum in the church that you've been a part of. But may we look at all of that and say, I forget about those things which are behind me. And I press forward. And may we also pray like Moses prayed. God, show me your glory. In other words, every morning we wake up, may we seek to see the countenance of Christ before we look upon any other face. May we seek to hear God's peace of His Holy Spirit before we dare to carry any of life's demands. Every single day, may we seek to see God. May we seek to hear from God. May we implore what His ways are before we make any decision. Every day, may we be seekers of God and pray, God, show me your glory. So Moses eventually had to come down from the mountain and re-engage life's relationships and life's responsibilities. But he did so a different person. Divine power was on him as never before, and divine power had been on him before. But something else unique happened. The skin on his face shone because he had been talking with God. Let's look at it in verse 29. When Moses came down from, the, from Mount Sinai with the two tablets of the testimony in his hands, as he came down from the mountain, Moses, watch this, did not know that the skin of his face shone because he had been talking with God. And when his face shone, guess what? The people noticed, and it directed people to God. It directed people to following God. Stephen, the church's first martyr in the New Testament, his face shone like that of an angel because he was spirit-filled because he had been talking with God. And I don't mean talking about our normal kind of prayer like God's a genie in the bottle and God hears my wish list or God's like Santa Claus and this is what I want for Christmas. I mean this kind of talking where we demand to see God's ways and demand His presence and demand to see His face. That kind of talking. 
His face shone, and Stephen's face shone. The Bible tells us that Jesus' disciples, after the death, burial, resurrection, and ascension, and the arrival of the Holy Spirit after Pentecost, these disciples were ministering, and these non-believers looked at these believers, and they marveled that they were unschooled men, and yet they were speaking with such power and with such authority. And then they remembered, ah, they've been spending time with Jesus. Moses had been talking with God. As a result, his face was shining. As a result, the people noticed, and they were pointing Pointed to God. But this is what I find remarkable, remarkable about this passage. Moses, it says, did not know that his face was shining. You see God every morning, pray like this, seek the scriptures like this, and you go to work or go about your day and enter into your responsibilities. You go into your meetings, and even if you don't know it, be certain your countenance is shining, and people see Jesus in you. And you may not feel it. The Apostle Paul said, you know what? I I ministered to you in fear and in trembling and in much weakness. Wow, that doesn't sound like the greatest church planner and theologian and missionary of all time. He said, but I was also with you in a demonstration of the Spirit's power. He didn't see it in himself, and he didn't feel it. In fact, he felt very different on the inside, but by faith he knew it, and he conducted himself as if he were functioning in power, and God delights in that kind of faith. You see, faith is not feeling it before you go. Faith is just going and trusting that the power of God is with you. He did not know his face was shining, but he pointed people to Jesus. And when we look across our world, the single greatest need is hope. Now, hope is not just wishful thinking, and hope is not a pipe dream. The Bible says in Colossians, this is hope. Hope in you is Christ, the hope of glory. Christ in you, the hope of glory. Hope is not wishful thinking. Hope is not optimism. Hope is not a pipe dream. Hope is a person, and his name is Jesus Christ. And this hope is more solid and more concrete than the mountains Christ created or the earth that he stacked the mountains 20,000 feet high up on. This hope, scriptures say, will not be disappointed. God says, look to me, trust in me, hope in me, and you will not be disappointed. This hope, Christ, is the hope that can rewrite an eternal address, that can restore a family, that can put a kid on the right track, that can transform a heart. This hope is what the world is dying for. Well, if the world is dying for this hope, then why why isn't the world turning to Jesus? If the world is dying for this hope, then why is the world instead turning to drugs, alcohol, violence, hatred, terrorism, fear, and the list goes on and on and on. If Jesus Christ is truly the hope that the world is dying for, then why are we looking to politicians and, and, and entering into escapist sins? And again, the list goes on and on and on. If this is the hope that the world is truly dying for, then why isn't the world looking for Christ? Because Jesus said of his followers, you are the light of the world. And if we are not shining, then they are not directed and pointed to the harbors, the safe shores of Jesus Christ. If we are not shining, then they are going to crash among the jagged rocks and tumultuous waves of the sea of this world. If we are not shining, people do not know to be pointed to Christ. The greatest need in our world today is hope. Therefore, our greatest responsibility as followers of Jesus Christ is to be so close to Christ, to be so filled up with hope that we shine. And if we shine, people cannot be helped but pointed to Christ. Gentry, come on up. In closing, let me read this story. This allegory about a life-saving station. 
On a dangerous seacoast where shipwrecks often occur, there was once a crude little life-saving station. The building was just a hut, and there was only one boat, but the few devoted members kept a constant watch over the sea. And with no thought for themselves, went out day and night tirelessly in search for the lost. Some of those who were saved and various others in the surrounding area wanted to become associated with the station and and give their time and the money and effort for the support of its work. New boats were brought and new crews trained. The little life-saving station grew. Oh, this looks like so many church plants, so many church starts. You know, they start with an abundance of idealism and zeal and passion and evangelistic fervor, and they begin seeing souls saved, and those little churches begin growing. And it's a beautiful thing. Unfortunately, it doesn't always stay beautiful. Some of the members of the life-saving station were unhappy that the building was so crude and poorly equipped. They felt that a more comfortable place should be provided at the first refuge of of those saved from the sea. They replaced the emergency cots with beds and put better furniture in the enlarged buildings. Now, the life-saving station became a popular gathering place for its members, and they decorated it beautifully and furnished it exquisitely. Because they had used it as sort of a club, Fewer members were now interested in going to sea on life-saving missions, so they hired lifeboat crews to do this work. The life-saving motif still prevailed in the club's decoration, and there was a symbolic lifeboat in the room where the club initiations were held. About this time, a large ship was wrecked off the coast, and the hired crews brought in the the boatloads of cold, wet, and half-drowned people. They were dirty and sick, and some of them had black skin, and some had yellow skin, and some had brown skin, and some had red skin, and the beautiful new club was in chaos. So the property committee immediately had a shower house built outside the club where the victims of the shipwreck could be cleaned up before coming inside. At the next meeting, there was a split in the club membership. Most of the members wanted to stop the club's life-saving activities as being unpleasant and a hindrance to the normal social life of the club. Oh, Some members insisted upon life-saving as their primary purpose and pointed out that they were still called a life-saving station. But they were finally voted down and told that if they wanted to save lives of all the various kinds of people who were shipwrecked in those waters, they could begin their own life-saving station down the road. So they did As the years went by, the new station experienced the same changes that had occurred in the old. It evolved into a club, and yet another life-saving station was founded. History continued to repeat itself, and if you visit that seacoast today, you will find a number of exclusive clubs along that shore. Shipwrecks are often often frequent in those waters, but most of the people drown. What a sad story, isn't it? Oh, may that not be us. May that not be us, but be certain. No matter how good our intentions are, no matter how well-intended we are, if we don't pray like Moses, if we don't seek the face of God like we just read, no matter how well-intended we are, no matter how theologically sound we are, that will be us. Because 
We can labor in vain, but if God doesn't build up the house, we labor in vain. And it is not by might, it is not by power. In other words, it is not by theology, it's not by eloquence, it's not by talent, it's not by charisma, it is not by might, it is not by power, but it's by my spirit, says the Lord. The world is not dying for eloquence, the world is not dying for theology, the world is not dying for beautiful buildings, the world is dying for hope, the world is dying for Christ. But they will not be directed to hope if we do not shine, and we will not shine if we don't pray like this. In Young Life, throughout high school, I was a Young Life leader in college. Throughout high school, I attended Young Life, and in college, I was a Young Life leader. And we oftentimes sing this song. What if what they say is true? What if you fed 5,000? What if you calmed the sea? Can you calm me? What if what they say is true? What if you walk on water? What if you heal disease? Can you heal me? I don't want to believe it, and I don't want to receive it. Why would you do anything for me? What if what they say is true? What if you rose on Easter? What if you conquered the sea? Can you conquer me? Your life to conquer death, and I'm asked to walk my steps with you. Can you stop the pain that covers me? What if what they say is true? What if you came to love me? What if you heard me say, I love you too? I love you too. I love you too. Aren't those beautiful words? Everybody all around you, and even Muslims, have this somewhere in their being because the scriptures tell us that God has placed eternity in the hearts of men. And again, if God can save us all of Tarsus, if God can save a John Newton, and if God can save me, and if God can save you, God can save nobody. Because nobody is a lost cause, because in reality, everybody is a lost cause, but by the Holy Spirit, but by the Holy Spirit, nobody is a lost cause. And if we simply shine, we will point anybody that we encounter to Christ. Would you stand with me? In our response, I want to invite you to come forward and pray for Paris. Come forward, pray for Lebanon. Come forward, pray for Kenya. Come forward, pray for the safety of America. But more than, more than that, pray for a revival in America. And revival doesn't mean keeping Muslims out. Revival means having a heart from them so that if they come to these shores, they're going to be transformed because the Spirit of God is so heavy here because Christians are repenting and turning to Christ and calling out, save me, and I surrender all. God has yet to see what the world, the world has yet to see what God will do through the person who has fully surrendered to Him. May you be that person, and may we be that church. Let's respond. In closing, I feel led to share the words of our Lord and Savior. This church isn't a business, it's a body, and we have a head. And our head is Jesus Christ. And so we don't dream up what we're supposed to be about. Jesus told us. And he said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations. And incidentally, we also are to praise God when he's bringing the nations here. Provided that we are shining. Baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, and behold, I am with you always to the very end of the age.
remember that song that we used to sing in Sunday school, if you were raised in church? This little light of mine, I'm going to let it shine. Hide it under a bushel? No, I'm going to let it shine. Satan may try to blow it out, but I'm going to let it shine. Let it shine, let it shine, let it shine, let it shine. Let's let our light shine. If we're not letting our light shine, what are we doing? We're like a bunch of firemen at night who hear an alarm and put earplugs in their ears because we don't want to be annoyed. We're like a bunch of doctors in the ER in the in the break room and a family was in a tragic crash, but they don't want to be inconvenient, so they slam the door. We are like a lifeguards putting suntan lotion on and some kid is drowning in the deep end, but they continue applying suntan lotion because they don't want to exert themselves. We're like a couple of policemen in a car watching a couple of teenagers beat an elderly lady and take everything they have, but they continue drinking their coffee. If the church refuses to shine because we don't want to be inconvenienced, because we, we, we don't want to wake up, because we don't want to exert ourselves, because we don't want to stand up and defend and protect the hopeless, if the church is not letting our light shine, then be assured this country is doomed. But if the church begins to let their light shine, America will have a revival, but more than that, hell will be populated, hell will be plundered, and heaven will be populated. Let's let our light shine. Seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness every day. Let's let our light shine. May we say like, say like Isaiah, here am I, Lord, send me. Here am I, Lord, send me. A couple of closing announcements. The first Sunday of December, the first Sunday of December, it's just, I think, a couple of Sundays away, we are going to have an invite Sunday. If there are friends in your life who need Christ, get them here at any and all costs. And pray that, again, hell is plundered and heaven is populated that Sunday. Seek the Lord every day. Let your light shine. God bless you.